Hi there, it's Melvin. Just wanted to take a moment to thank the team over at Thryzer for supporting this month's podcast sessions. Thryzer is a payment platform that you have to check out if you are a private pay therapist and accepting out-of-network benefits. It basically helps clients save on therapy up front. Thryzer can help verify a client's out-of-network benefit ahead of the first session so that they get transparency up front on what their out-of-pocket costs will be. I'll tell you more about Thryzer here in the middle of our session, but if you go to sellingthecouch.com forward slash Thryzer, uh, you actually end, then enter the code STC upon sign up, you get your first $2,500 in fees waived. Again, that's over at sellingthecouch.com forward slash Thryzer, and be sure to enter the promo code STC. So we'll jump right into today's podcast session. Hello, hello. Welcome to session 170 of Selling the Couch. Hope you're having a fantastic start to your day. So today's podcast conversation is on a topic that I know there has been lots of conversations in the STC community and all of the other uh, private practice related Facebook communities online, which is how in the world do you get credentialed and get on insurance panels? I feel like for me, this is such a foreign area. So as you will hear, I ask a lot of really silly questions, but I figured it's better just to ask those questions than uh, than pretend like I, I know what I'm talking about. So my guest today is Jeremy Zug. Jeremy is with Practice Solutions and their website is at Practice sol.com. And um, Practice Solutions is a company that helps and works with clinicians with insurance and billing and all of those kind of things. And I've gotten to connect with Jeremy here over the past couple of months. And one of the things that's just really resonated for me is he's just a nice guy and a kind guy and just genuinely helpful. There's been a time recently where somebody in the STC directory community had asked for some insurance-related resource, and I was like, I have no idea where to find that. And I had reached out to Jeremy, and Jeremy pretty quickly sent me a template to share, and I just thought, man, that was cool. So looking forward to this conversation. We're going to cover a range of different things. So first is we're going to cover what exactly does getting credentialed and paneled mean? We're going to break down some of these terms like NPI numbers and CAQH and type 1 and type 2 and all of those things. And then we're going to walk through the major steps in getting paneled. And then we are actually going to discuss some of the top mistakes that clinicians make when it comes to getting paneled. This podcast is chock full of information and so you can follow along on the show notes page over at sellingthecouch.com forward slash session dash 170. Today's podcast is supported by Turning Point HQ. Uh, this is a brand new sponsor on the STC podcast, but David and well, I call him Dave. Dave and I have gotten to know each other over the past two years. He was a previous STC podcast guest. And honestly, Dave is one of the most kind and generous and helpful people that I know. And with sponsors, you guys know I'm I'm super discretionary in terms of who I share uh, the STC audience with. And Dave 
when uh, we talked about sponsorship, he was one of those people. I just, I had zero doubt. And so Dave is a financial planner, uh, specifically for therapists. And his whole mission is to transform your relationship with money. I know for many of us, uh, money is something that, and the money stories that we have often been told, it impacts a lot of how we do business. It impacts how we approach things like retirement and investing and all of those things. And Dave understands that, and he comes from just a very heart-centered place to help us build out an investment in a retirement portfolio. Dave actually has this really cool guide. Uh, It's absolutely free to download, and it's called The Seven Money Mistakes That Hold Therapists Back. You can find it over at sellingthecouch.com forward slash turning point HQ. And that guide has a lot of the things that that can hold a lot of therapists back. And actually, if you go through that link as well, you get $200 off any service that Dave provides. Hey, Jeremy, welcome to Selling the Couch. Hey, Melvin, thanks for having me. I really appreciate you having me on, on the podcast. I'm grateful for our friendship. It's been neat just to be able to connect with you. And I feel like this topic of getting paneled and getting on insurance panels, uh, this absolutely terrifies a lot of clinicians. And I'm just uh, grateful that we're going to have this conversation. Yeah, I think that it'll be informative and, and helpful for you know a lot of people just to dispel some of the mystery around credentialing. I wanted to make sure everyone was on the same page. So I guess before we get started, what exactly does getting credentialed and paneled mean? Yeah, so credentialing and paneling, or the other term is payer enrollment, is the process of showing and providing your credentials to an insurance company. So your license, employment history, education, et cetera, right? Because insurance companies aren't going to contract with people that they don't know anything about right? They're not going to pay somebody that they can't prove is qualified or, you know, licensed or whatever. So that process is just showing that you are who you say you are and you have the credentials that you claim to have. Right. So it sounds like this is sort of, I guess, on multiple levels. So everything from like personal information, like name to more professional things like degree, those license information, that kind of stuff. Well, that's, that's exactly right. And, you know, employment history, degree, license, address, NPI, all that stuff, right? And there's a specific process that insurance companies have set up to walk people through. Um, and it's shrouded in ambiguity unless you've been down the road a couple of times. Um, and if you've never been down the road, that's uh, what we're going to address. I'm going to ask like lots of really dumb questions today. So please <laughs> forgive me. Uh, Not a problem. What is MPI? Yeah, an NPI is a national provider identifier. It's sort of like a social security number. It's a particular number Mm. that identifies who a provider is, Mm. right? And so some of the backstory of that is how a provider gets paid through insurance. So when you submit a claim, it will have your NPI on the claim so that the insurance companies know who rendered the service. I see. So do you put, again, silly questions, but... I imagine you put the NPI when you are actually in network with a certain insurance provider. Do you also do it if it's like you're billing out a network? That's correct. Right. So, so an NPI would go on any claim that you send to the insurance companies. Mm -hmm. Got it. I wanted to even just break this down a little further. So let's actually walk through the, the major steps in on, you know, in terms of getting on a panel. 
Sure. So the first major step of credentialing is to gather all of the necessary documents that it will take to sign up for CAQH, which we'll get to in a second, right? Or or just to submit an application to an insurance company, right? So those documents would be your the documentation for your type one and type two NPI, which when you obtained those, you would have gotten a notification or a letter in the mail with either of those. You would need your tax ID, so your IRS documentation, um, which would essentially be the copy of your EIN paperwork, a W-9 to show your address and your name, your business name or your DBA. You would need to document any specialties. So if you're like a certified addictions counselor, right, you would need that certification. You would need your resume, your standard work hours and your employment history, right? So you would want to gather, that's the first step. You want to gather all of those documents together. Uh, for the application process, right? And so for Medicare, if, if you wanted to get credentialed with Medicare, you'd also need a provider transaction access number, which you apply for at the same time as you apply for a national provider identifier, hmm. right? So you'd need that number as well. Um, so you want to gather all those together. Then you'd want to create or update your CAQH account. And all CAQH is, is a database that contains your resume and all those documentation, all that documentation together in a database that the insurance companies can look at and vet you to make sure they want to take you into their panel, right? And you can also apply for insurance panels through CAQH, right? And then, you know, within CAQH, you want to acquire the applications, fill out the applications, submit the applications, and then follow up on the applications. And so, so you can do all of this within CAQH? That's correct, right. Okay. And if a payer hasn't signed up for their side of CAQH, you'd have to fill out their application, right? And that varies between insurance companies. So you'd want to contact them specifically to get their application. Okay. And I guess are the major insurance companies, I would imagine most of the major ones are on there. Yeah or no? Correct. Yeah. Most of the major, right. Blue Cross Blue Shield, Aetna Cigna, you know, and it all depends on your state really. But to my knowledge, all of the major ones are on CAQH and essentially they use that as just their filter, right? They want to look at all of your information because these applications can be 60, 90 pages long. So yeah, it's a ton of paperwork. And so CAQH really distills that down into the necessary components of what they're looking for, for taking a provider in their panel or in network. Do these uh, applications, do they vary by state or does like, for example, Blue Cross have like a standard one across all states in the US, for example? Great question. So because insurance companies, well, some like Blue Cross Blue Shield is a franchise, right? Mm -hmm. They vary from state to state. Mm. Right. So there's not a unified process or unified application. They're all a little bit different. Right. Because insurance is regulated by state and federal law and state's laws are different. Right. So the applications, the qualifications, everything will be a little different. Right. Mm. And so you want to make sure and do your research ahead of time to ensure that, you know, you have the right application for your state and you meet all the qualifications for your state. So it's very hard to give universal answers to this stuff. Got it. And then you said earlier in that process of gathering information, you said something about like type one, type two. Oh, yeah. And like, uh, can you explain that a little bit more? Yeah. So a type one NPI would be specific to a provider. So let's say that, you know, Jeremy owns Jeremy's Dog Therapy. So I would have an individual NPI or a type one NPI, but Jeremy's Dog Therapy 
would have a type two NPI or a group NPI. So let's say I wanted to hire a bunch of clinicians, right? I would submit with their type one NPI, but also with the type two NPI. So it communicates to the insurance company that uh, therapist Y has rendered the session, but they've done so in our organization under our umbrella. Oh, that's interesting. So type two is almost like, uh, I don't know if this is a bad analogy, but like like the LLC name, almost like the name. Correct. Yeah, it would be. Yeah, exactly. It would be your your billing NPI, your group's NPI. And some companies won't let you in the panel without a type two, actually, which is very interesting. Oh, um, almost so, like you. So you have to have a group practice. You have to have a group NPI. Not that you have to have a group practice uh-huh. necessarily. Right. Okay. But you at least have to have the NPI for the organization, which is a common misconception that you know, I don't want to get a type two MPI because I just want to practice individually. Well, that's fine. That's not a problem. But for some insurance panels, you have to have both, right? One does not require you to be a group. Got it. And these both type one, type two, they're acquired through this, the same MPI website? Correct. Right. And that website is nppes.com, right? So you would go there to apply for your NPI. All right. So the first step is getting the necessary paperwork. Second is updating or creating or updating the CAQH account. And what do we do after that? So then you would acquire the applications. So then within CAQH, uh, you would get the applications, you would fill them out, and then you would submit them. So if we're looking at the steps after updating CAQH, it would be acquire application, fill out the application, and then submit the application. I've heard like nightmare stories of of submitting these, like, you know, like one little thing off could really impact a lot of things. I mean, how true is that? It's very true, right? So if your address is off, if your tax ID is off by a digit or your NPI is off by a digit, you know, any of that stuff will throw off the process, right? And so you want to be incredibly detail oriented when it comes to filling out these applications because, you know, insurance companies, there's no urgency on their part to help providers. There's no urgency to get these through the system. So the more detailed and organized you are on the front end of all this, the better off you will be on the back end. I guess, what would organization even look like? So I imagine like maybe having, yeah, I don't even know, like, what would that even look like being organized? Yeah. So being organized starts at when you decide to start a private practice, Mm. I would think, right? Because you know, to start the business, you need the IRS paperwork, right? Or you need your, you're going to register with your social security number, right? But all of that documentation as you start needs to be compiled into a filing system or some sort of organization system where you can easily access the documentation, mm-hmm. right? So it's like if you get your, your EIN from the IRS and then you write that down on a sticky note and then throw away the IRS paperwork, well, that's going to create a lot of problems for you down the road, right? Because insurance companies aren't going to take your sticky note, right? They're going to look for the IRS paperwork. So all along the way, you'll want to be compiling the necessary documentation to show this stuff. So if it were me, I would, I would create a file and I would, you know, label each document as, you know, what it is, right? And then at least you have everything in a centralized location to submit to the insurance companies. Got it. So, so you're acquiring the paperwork, you're filling out the application, and then you're submitting. What are the factors that influence whether a clinician gets paneled or not? This is a great question, right? Market saturation, 
right? So if you're in LA County, right, where there's a ton of therapists, you're going to have a hard time getting on that panel, right? Or Priority Health in Michigan is another one that's incredibly difficult to get on because they just have a ton of therapists across the state, right? So market saturation as far as uh, the amount of therapists to the population in an area, right? Because for the insurance companies, they don't want to oversaturate the market, right? The other thing that fa- that's a factor for influencing whether you get on a panel is specialty, right? So Cigna particularly really likes when people work with patients who struggle with eating disorders, right? So they will be more amenable to letting a clinician on the panel if they work or they specialize in eating disorders, mm-hmm. right? And those decisions are a little ambiguous, right? And there's not a great way to know what they're all looking for, but market saturation, specialty, and then of course, healthcare need, right? Let's say you're in rural West Virginia. Well, you're probably going to get panels asking, like inviting you to be on their panel, right? Which has happened. Or let's say that you're in Dearborn and it's a practice that has an Arabic speaking psychiatrist, Mm. right? Well, that's going to be really, really valuable for the insurance company to be able to say, well, look, this psychiatrist in particular is in our panel, right? You, all of our members can go to them to, to get care, right? So those are the three things that they're looking for. But there are things you can do if you apply to an insurance panel and they say they're closed. Okay. All right. So I definitely want to hear that because I am sure a lot of listeners want to hear, but you said it's like, it's just such good stuff. I wanted to just take a step back. So sure. you said one of the things is that insurance companies don't want market saturation. How come? Well, that's a good question. I think that the answer depends on the insurance company, right? So you would think they'd want to corner the market, but that's not always the case. A large part of that is it drives down their reimbursement rates, which is a huge driver for people wanting to be on a panel, right? Right. So so let's say insurance Y pays the highest in an area. Well, they're going to want to continue that process to attract the best clinicians in an area. When there's market saturation, it drives their reimbursement rates down, and then anybody's going to apply, right? So it it gives the insurance companies some leverage over, over one, how much they pay a clinician, and two, who they let in the panel. Got it. Right. So, I mean, I feel like this is probably not an absolute truth, but does reimbursement rates, is that an indication of saturation for like a specific insurance Example? Sometimes, right? Because the equation, and this is a known piece of information, but there is an equation that determines an insurance company's reimbursement rates. Mm-hmm. Now, how they arrive to the rates they have is trade secret, right? So any fee schedule that an insurance company puts forward is trade secret. And if you disclose that to anybody, you could lose your license over. So don't do that. Mm-hmm. But there is an equation that involves a ton of variables. And one of those is what it costs to run a practice in a specific geographical area, Mm. right? And if those costs vary, then it sways their reimbursement. Interesting. You said the second factor is specialty and you said eating disorders. Just thinking about the clinicians you've worked with and and have helped, you know, get paneled. Mm -hmm. Are there other like specialties that seem to also do really well? Yeah, addictions tends to do really well. And a lot of this is driven by what happens in DC. So right now, the opioid crisis, right, is driving a lot of insurance companies to take in addiction specialists. So it's important to keep an eye on various issues and read the news on this stuff, because it really affects who gets in panels and who doesn't, right? So if I'm a generalist, 
therapist, right? If I'm just a garden salad variety therapist, it'll be a little difficult to get into panels because really you could see everybody, but we don't really know what that means, right? As, a, as an insurance company. But if you are the eating disorder person or the addiction person in your community, then of course we're going to want you in our panel because then our members can go see you. Mm. All the patients can go to you versus somebody else. Yeah, that is really interesting. I actually never thought about how the political climate and sort of what's happening socially can impact paneling. Yeah, all the time, right? Because in April, right, Medicare, there was a bill put forward to have LPCs accepted in Medicare because of the addiction crisis, Mm. right? Especially in rural communities. Or, you know, the other one that was really interesting was Blue Cross Blue Shield in Alaska allowing telehealth services, right? Because they were flying people to Seattle for mental health care when it'd be a lot better to utilize technology to get care for those people, right? Mm. Or at least have them have access to care, right? And a lot of that is driven by social political climate. That's really interesting. You said earlier that, you know, you go through this process and maybe there is some aspect, whether it's market saturation or specialty, or maybe there's not sort of a healthcare need, there's a chance that the application could get rejected. So Mm -hmm. what do you do in that case? Right. So that's what we would call a closed panel, right? Mm -hmm. So if you apply to an insurance company and they say, nope, we're closed, here are some tips that you can use to give yourself the best shot of still being accepted, because it still does happen. First of all, you would need to use evidence-based modalities of treatment. So if you can prove through data in your EHR or through your progress notes that your treatment has helped people and you can quantify that, that's like gold, right? Being able to show progress in charts and in data sets is huge, right? So if you have an evidence-based modality of treatment, great way to go, right? Because uh, then you can show insurance companies, look, I know you're closed, but you know the patients who I provide care to see these outcomes at the end. The next thing you could do is you can always present the number of requests you get from clients that are currently on this panel. So essentially, does that make sense? Yeah. So, so like if somebody, like a potential client calls and they're like, I want to use Blue Cross Blue Shield, you could provide some sort of data to Blue Cross Blue Shield saying, hey, I get X number of clients. Right, right. And why that's important is, let's say they come to you, Melvin, and they really want to see you, but you're out of network. Mm -hmm. Well, you're going to charge them your full rate. So the cost to the client is enormous, Mm -hmm. right? But if you're getting a lot of requests from patients that are from that panel, the insurance companies want to drive costs down for their clients So they have a good experience like any other business. Right. Mm. And so if they can provide cheaper costs, at least to them, right, that will be an incentive for them to do that. And let's say that you have a bunch of patients, let's say you're at a network with Blue Cross Blue Shield and you have a bunch of patients that are self-pay. That's another thing you can present. Mm. Look, I have 15 patients that are shelling out thousands of dollars, right, when they could just be paying your copay, right? And then they would be really happy with that. That's another really valuable piece of data to provide. Uh, Again, this might be a silly statement, but I feel like, so what you're saying is, if in that example, there are 15 clinicians that are private pay, from the perspective of the clinician, the reason you would want to consider getting credentialed is maybe you're not always going to have 15. And maybe by showing this, you have like more of a steady stream of people coming in, right? Now that you're credentialed. Yeah, that's precisely right. Okay. Yep. I appreciate this conversation because I feel like, I don't know, I, 
I can't tell you the amount of times like I've looked at discussions and it just like it's way over my head of you know like and uh, yeah I'm grateful yeah. you're breaking it down like this. yeah not a, not a problem it's just something that folks struggle with right because they see a you know when you get a rejection letter from a panel it can be really demoralizing right because mm-hmm. you know you have this plan that if I get on this panel I can see more patients right but they just rejected me so what do I do right but we still have some agency in this stuff as far as getting people in network, even with a rejected, you know, even from a closed panel perspective. Yeah. To be honest, like, again, just cause I'm not familiar, but I never thought of that. Like, I think a lot of us, I feel like in the field assume like, Oh, we're rejected. Oh, it's, I got to figure out some other alternative, you know, like that's it, you know? And so again, like the three things you're saying is if you can prove that you're providing an evidence-based service, if you can prove like sort of the number of clients that are coming to you that are requesting or asking or saying that they're on uh, certain insurance. And then if you can kind of look at the number of self-pay clients that you have, is there anything else that that would be helpful that sort of counter or the counter the rejection? Yeah, there's one last thing and that would be rate negotiation, right? And so if you could offer them a lower price than what they're paying in the market, that would incentivize them to do so. From a business perspective, I would caution against going too low, right? Because you need to keep the lights on. And so if you're doing well with private pay clients, it would be tough to hit on the margins. But if it's really important to you to be on that panel, you can always negotiate the schedule. Interesting. Jeremy, as we wrap up, what would you say are the top three mistakes that clinicians make when it comes to submitting to an insurance panel? Yeah. So the first thing is misinformation. This would be the top mistakes that mistake that folks make, right? So an address is wrong, some digit is off in your NPI. So just making sure that all of the information that you enter on the application is correct. That would be the first thing. The second thing would be jumping the gun on seeing patients. So one thing that we've noticed is that in CAQH, when an insurance company wants to look at your information or your application, they will give you a notification that says payer X has added you to their roster, which is very confusing Mm. because to a lot of people, that means while I'm on the roster, I'm on the panel, I can see patients and get paid. If you get that notification that says payer X has added you to their roster, it just means they want to look at your information. doesn't mean you're in network yet. So that's that. And then the last bit is disclosing more than they need to, right? So For example, one piece of information is disclosing to an insurance company, in some cases, other companies' rates, right? Mm -hmm. And I mentioned this before, that if you disclose, you know, rates specifically from an insurance company, that insurance company that you're applying to will see you as a liability, right? Because they don't want you to disclose that stuff. So, so just be very careful about what you disclose on your application. Be very careful about not jumping the gun. Um, on seeing patients, and then just make sure all your information is correct on your application. Perfect. Um, Jeremy, thank you again for doing this. Uh, Grateful for you. Uh, Where can we learn more about the work that you guys are doing in the world? Yeah, thanks. So you can always go to our website at practicesol.com. If you want, you can always reach out to me directly and we can have a conversation about, uh, you know, essentially anything, right? We can talk about credentialing if your practice has you know, specific needs or what have you, more than happy to talk and troubleshoot any issues that you've been having or, you know, that, that's really the best way, right? We, we can have our staff sit down with you and, and talk about, you know, what we can do to help, right? And then we have a blog there as well. So you can always check us out there.
Perfect. Yeah, no, absolutely. Because I mean, each practice has its own sort of unique challenges, right? And I feel no, like... definitely, without a doubt. <laughs> <laughs> Jeremy, thank you again for doing this. Well, thanks, Melvin. I really appreciate it. Have a great rest of your day. Hi there. Hope you enjoyed today's podcast session. And especially if you're in that process of thinking about getting on insurance panels and getting you know, or going through the credentialing process, I hope that today's session's given you a overview of what to expect and some of the common mistakes that clinicians make when it comes to getting credentialed. I was thinking about today's podcast session and just a couple of things I wanted to highlight that I didn't know and I thought would just be helpful to highlight. So one is specialties, right? And how certain specialties are more in need than others. And I don't know, you know, if you guys have listened to this episode of the podcast, not just with clinicians, but also when I've had like private practice coaches on, a lot of them talk about the power of niching and finding specializations. And it's interesting, even from an insurance perspective, that that seems to really resonate. And then the second thing that just really stood out to me was that just because we get rejected off of a, an insurance panel or it's told that it's closed doesn't mean that it's the end of the line and that we actually have a power and voice and we can advocate for ourselves. And again, the tips that Jeremy mentioned to do that are see if you provide evidence-based services and you can uh, provide evidence of that. That's a lot of evidence words in one. But And then the next one is seeing, talking about the number of clients that are specifically coming from certain insurance panels. And then if you're self-pay, even just noting the amount of clients that are with a certain insurance panel but are choosing to pay through self-pay. And then the fourth one is doing some sort of rate negotiation. Jeremy mentioned a number of resources, and uh, you can find information to that on the show notes page over at sellingthecouch.com forward slash session dash 170. And there's actually a little bonus for STC listeners if you do want to work with Jeremy and his company just to get credentialed and, and going through that entire process. Before we wrap up, just wanted to take a moment to thank the team over at Turning Point HQ for supporting today's podcast session. So Turning Point HQ is the result or is the brainchild of David Frank, who is a financial planner for therapists. And as I've mentioned before, uh, Dave and I actually have gotten to be good friends, just an awesome person to work with. And one of the things that Dave will help us to do is create a holistic and an intentional retirement and investing plan that supports you to lead a really awesome life. Because ultimately, I think for many of us, it's we invest, right, to create the life that we want. And uh, it's to do it in an intentional way. And Dave, honestly, is just one of the most like heart-centered folks that I've ever met. And you're absolutely going to be in good hands with him. You can learn more about Turning Point HQ and the awesome services that they provide over at sellingthecouch.com forward slash Turning Point HQ. And if you go through that link, uh, Dave actually created this seven financial mistakes that therapists make. It's a free downloadable and uh, you can download it right there. And then you also get $200 off any of your, any of the services that Dave provides. Be sure to mention that you heard it on STC. Have a great rest of your day and thank you so much for tuning in. Bye.
Thanks for listening to the Selling the Couch podcast. For more great content and to stay up to date, visit www.sellingthecouch.com. So if you've been listening to the STC podcast for a while or you've been listening to podcasts and you've had this thought of, Mel, I would love to launch my own podcast in order to grow my business, just wanted to encourage you to check out our free podcasting workshop, which is over at sellingthecouch.com forward slash podcasting workshop. You can basically sign up at a day and a time that works for you. It's 90 minutes. And when I do these workshops or when I record them, I truly believe in the quality teaching, so it's going to be well worth your time. We're going to go through gear recommendations and how to launch strategically and how to think about monetizing your podcast and how to line up your podcast with your existing offers and how to do it strategically and authentically uh, and not salesy and slimy um, and all of those things. So again, the link is over at sellingthecouch.com forward slash podcasting workshop.